Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ask your doctor about Air Supra, albuterol budesonide. Eligible patients can pay as little as $0 per inhaler, subject to eligibility rules and maximum savings limits. Restrictions may apply. Visit airsuprasavings.com to learn more. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to the editors of Environmental Justice in the Anthropocene, From Unjust Presence to Just Futures, published this year by Rutledge. Joining me today are Stacia Ryder, Catherine Paulin, and Melinda Lituri. Also editors of the book who weren't able to be with us are Stephanie Malin, Joshua Kitta, and Demetra Stevens. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Why don't you each tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yeah, I'm Stacia Ryder, and I was a PhD student in the sociology department at Colorado State University. I'm now a postdoc at the University of Exeter, um, but I'm also a co-founder of the Center for Environmental Justice at Colorado State University, and that's really how this book came to be. So, uh, Several of us have been working on environmental justice issues at the University of, um, for several years, and um, we hosted a symposium on environmental justice in the Anthropocene a few years ago, and this uh, collection came out of uh, that uh, event. So if anyone else wants to say a bit more about that, um, feel free. Um, Okay, I can jump in next. So I am a PhD candidate uh, at Colorado State University in the Human Dimensions of Natural Resources Department. Um, I started working with the Center for Environmental Justice back in 2017 as a program coordinator when I was doing my master's at CSU. Um, And so I was involved in kind of the planning for that international symposium that was just mentioned, which happened back in April 2017. Um, and yeah, and then that's kind of how this book came about, as has been mentioned. Thanks, and I'm Melinda Lituri, and I'm a professor emeritus at Colorado State University. Um, I've been working on environmental justice issues since the 1990s. In fact, my PhD was on environmental justice in Tucson, Arizona. I've worked on many um, different international aspects of environmental justice and This book just naturally came out of that as we started to develop the Center for Environmental Justice at at Colorado State. Thanks. Okay, so you all mentioned the conference that this book comes out of. So why don't we talk a little bit more about, you know, what was this conference, you know, 
why did you decide to hold this and what led to the idea that, well, this conference should also turn into a book? Hi, I guess I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, I don't know if people are cutting out or if I'm missing something, but um, just to, to talk about the conference itself, we, we felt that it was really important to have a strong international flavor about environmental justice issues. And we thought that having a conference where we invited people to uh, our institution to talk about this would be a, a moment to really reflect on environmental justice, to highlight the important work that's going on around the world, and to really get a sense of what, what environmental justice is and what does it mean within this context of this very contentious term, the Anthropocene. Uh, so uh, that's where this project came from. Okay, so... You mentioned uh, the Anthropocene as a contentious term, and that was actually where I wanted to go next. So uh, could you tell us a bit about you know, the, the debate that has been going on about the term the Anthropocene basically ever since it was coined, and then how your book fits into that debate and kind of where you're positioned relative to the different uh, arguments that get made about the, this term, the Anthropocene? Okay, so um, in terms of the debates over the Anthropocene, there are actually more than one, of course. Um, it's contested as a geological term, but what we tend to focus on in the book is the uh, social uh, contestations of the term, and those um, center around the idea that we're not all equally responsible for um, the changes that we're seeing in our climate um, and that the responsibility for that it, as it's uh, conceptualized in the Anthropocene is sort of glossed over. So it doesn't account for uh, differences in terms of economics or differences in terms of race or differences in terms of the global North and the global South. And so um, there have been other um, conceptualizations like the Plantationocene, the Capitalocene, um, or the, I can't, I'm not sure I can pronounce it correctly, but uh, Donna Haraway does a take on it as well. Um, and I think where we've positioned ourselves by the end of the book is that um, we recognize that all of these contestations are important. So not, no one of those, the Anthropocene, Plantationocene, or Capitalocene, are sufficient, that we need to be able to account for all of those uh, contestations of the term. Yeah, Melinda, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I think there's a couple other things to highlight that are really valuable for readers of the book to think about. Um, I think Stephanie Malin, one of our co-authors, wrote an excellent uh, overview of this issue with respect to um, examining the Anthropocene. And uh, Christine Winter, who wrote our foreword, this has a great uh, description of thinking about this, this term Anthropocene within the context of indigenous peoples and, and their viewpoint about this. So I, I think it's really um, an exciting read to take a look at these different aspects. Okay. And so one of the other points that, uh, that you make in this book is that environmental justice needs to be multiscalar. So could someone talk a bit about what you mean by that and maybe give us an example or two from the book that illustrates this idea of having environmental justice working at multiple scales? Well, I think one of the most important scale issues to consider is time. Uh, the fact that the context for environmental justice is not something that just emerged 
uh, suddenly in, uh, say, the last 20 years. It's something that's been with us for a long period of time. So understanding this uh, across the, you know, the understanding the historical context of all this has been one of the key things that has been discussed here. Anything from looking at various pipelines that have been constructed in the United States. One of our chapters talks about the um, Sebald Trail pipeline and looking at that, that takes place, um, like I say, in the U.S. and understanding the relationship between people, place, and when they, how these things impact them. And the, the fact that the situation is set up in such a way that um, the, the we need to understand why these locations were chosen. And often it's because people who do not have voice and are not represented are not able to participate. And then this is compounded over time. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. And Katie or Stacia, did you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think that's a pretty good overview, both on kind of the contestation of the Anthropocene and also kind of issues being multiscalar. I think, yeah, like like as Melinda has mentioned, I think additionally we um, talk about. I know in some of my chapters we talk about how uh, action needs to happen at the local and national and international level in terms of policy. Um, I can think of a couple chapters that were talking about uh, climate justice issues and how climate justice movements kind of happen at those different levels, um, both working within kind of those frontline communities, as well as these big um, convergent international uh, climate justice spaces. Okay. And then picking up on the idea that Melinda mentioned about the historical context in time, there's also kind of a, a future time that you talk about in the book and you've got you know, the sections of the book are kind of organized so that you go from the thinking on the Anthropocene to environmental justice as spatial justice, and then you have just transitions, and then the last section is just futures. So how do you see the future of environmental justice and the future that environmental justice can create for us? Um, I'll start. Um, I, I think that the future of environmental justice is fraught. And I think that we need to really be um, mindful of the various forces that are at play right now. Um, when we look to the future, we must be creative. We must be thinking about very in innovative ways to address the profound in inequities that exist around the world, um, particularly after having experienced the year of, of the pandemic. And as we continue to emerge from the pandemic, whatever that might mean. So I think that the future is, is something for us to really um, embrace in a way where we, uh, as, as Katie mentioned, we, we are active and we think of the, the ways that we can give voice to those who have not had their voices heard before or as clearly as they must be heard and think about innovative strategies for, for trying to make these things happen. 
Okay, and uh, it looks like Stacia's uh, internet connection has died here, so hopefully she'll be able to rejoin us as we uh, continue the interview. But uh, just continuing on talking with uh, Melinda and Katie, the next question that I had is, so this book has six editors, uh, three of which were able to be with us uh, today, and that's you know on the high side as uh, edited books go. So I'm interested in how you organize the works, both in terms of like the practical aspects of keeping the project moving, but then also in terms of the intellectual side of bringing together the different perspectives that uh, the six of you were each bringing to this project. That's such a great question, Stentor. Um, and, and I'll start with it and then pass it off to Katie. And the only reason I'm starting is because I'm I'm the um, I'm this professor emeritus on this, and I have felt so fortunate to be able to work with uh, younger, early career people to to get something like this out into um, the literature. So so that was really rewarding for me. The entire life of this project was quite extensive because it really started with this conference. So all of the intellectual planning that went into that conference, we were all party to, and we all took different responsibilities throughout the life of the conference to writing the book. So early on, some of us were more involved in planning the conference and getting invitations out and scheduling that. And then as we morphed into working on the book, uh, some of us worked more on the proposal itself and getting that submitted to the publisher and then actual, the actual shepherding of all of the chapters through that process, um, we, again, was a different set of us who kind of shepherded us that through. So we felt it was really important to be inclusive of all of us as we all um, participate in different, different ways throughout the, the lifetime of this project. So it's really exciting to see it um, come to uh, fruition. And, and I'll see if, if uh, Stacia's back on or Katie wants to comment. Yeah, I just I agree with all of that and would just add one more thing. You know, it was six was a lot, but I think it was really helpful in terms of getting this edited volume together when we have so many authors from so many different disciplines and environmental justice just crosses a wide span of, of research and studies. And so it was great that we had so many different editors with different backgrounds and coming from sociology or political science or geography that we could really kind of pull on that knowledge and have what I feel is a really well-rounded and kind of wide-spanning environmental justice edited volume. Yeah, and I think that's one of the nice things about this volume is that it's interdisciplinary like that and kind of shows how environmental justice crosses over these different disciplines and you know gives us a a way to connect with uh, ideas and uh, bodies of work that you might not see if you're staying within your own disciplinary uh, trajectory or, or silo. Uh, so there are 23 chapters in this book, in addition to the intro and conclusion. Uh, and so that's you got quite a lot of people writing here, but they're also pretty succinct chapters, you know, so I don't want our listeners to feel intimidated that this is this, you know, massive book. Uh, they're, you know, good, succinct to the point uh, chapters. And so we can't really take the time to like go through every chapter uh, of the book, but just to give our listeners some 
highlights, get them interested in what is in this book. Could each of you uh, just share one thing from one of the contributions to the book that you found most exciting or surprising or that maybe pushed your thinking in uh, new, some new directions? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ask your doctor about Air Supra, albuterol budesonide. Eligible patients can pay as little as $0 per inhaler, subject to eligibility rules and maximum savings limits. Restrictions may apply. Visit airsuprasavings.com to learn more. Well, that's another hard question, Stentor. Um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the organizational tools we used in organizing the book was that each of us, um, between Katie and, and myself and Stacia, uh, we kind of each shepherded one of the parts of the, uh, book through the whole process. And so I was in charge of the environmental justice as spatial justice. And so having said that, I would say that spatial justice, uh, is embedded throughout this whole book because uh, space and place are so critical to environmental justice and understanding it within this context of the Anthropocene. So it's hard to, to tease out just one key thing. I think the what what I learned from this experience and, and what people might think about as they look at this overall volume is the fact that this is an issue in so many different places around the world. And there's so much to do. It's so, such a rich arena in which to start to look at issues that have to do with um, things from uh, looking at uh, housing patterns in Eastern Europe to understanding water insecurity in Nicaragua to looking at how we might uh, look at energy or electricity consumption in Mexico and how all of these speak to environmental justice. Yeah, and so as Melinda said, I was kind of, uh, assisting the Just Future section moving forward. And so this is also a hard question for that section because, you know, as we've talked about so far, a, a just future is really multidimensional and um, requires addressing a number of issues. So, so I would say the Just Future section 
would be hard to pull something out specifically because we talk both about, you know, how to better incorporate intergenerational justice um, and sustainable development and climate justice movements. We talk about what climate justice movements look like and how those can be more inclusive, um, as well as talking about just some of the the policies that we have in the United States to protect natural and cultural resources and kind of how, such as like NEPA and how those are really working and how um, we can kind of make those work better. So it's it's hard to pick out one specific thing because it really was, and in addition to kind of also rethinking kind of our relationship with the natural world, we even have chapters that kind of reframe what that looks like and calls upon ideas of degrowth. And so it's really, it's got a a bunch of interesting points. Okay. And just to, you know, pick up on the point of the geographical diversity of the case studies that your contributors have, you've actually got this nice map uh, towards the beginning of the book that shows the locations of some of these case studies. And you've got, I think I count 13 different countries represented from Canada to Brazil, to Tanzania, to Sweden, to China. So it's got a a nice kind of global perspective in terms of the the different locations that your contributors are uh, writing from and writing about. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for for noticing that. I just love maps. And so we were sure to put a map in here to to demonstrate this, this global reach of this story. And it's just so amazing to, um, again, many of these people came to the conference that we had at Colorado State. And so one of our aims as an outcome of this is to facilitate further um, environmental justice conferences such as this and to continue the dialogue and make sure that we're sharing what we're learning and leverage uh, resources and activities uh, around the world to further the further the, the perspectives and uh, needs of addressing environmental justice. Yeah, exactly. It just, again, to talk about that at symposium, um, as Melinda mentioned, we had presenters from 30 different countries working in even more countries. And so we really wanted to make sure um, we were excited about that international reach of the symposium and really wanted to make sure that the book reflected that. Great. Uh, it looks like Stacia has reconnected to us. Uh, and so Stacia, I was just asking the other two about uh, examples of something from the contributors to the book, since you know we can't go through all 23 uh, of those chapters, but to kind of highlight one thing that they thought was especially interesting or that kind of... Uh, pushed their own thinking forward from one of the contributors. So would you like to uh, to give your own contribution on that question? Yeah, I'm outside. So this is my last ditch effort to try and connect successfully. Um, so hopefully uh, you can hear me fine. Yep, I can hear you. Um, okay, great. So I, I think there's two or three concepts for me that really stick out. I think um, when Ben talks about uh, being able to create the time and space to accommodate difference while also recognizing that there is uh, urgency in terms of climate change and what we need to do, I think that that's really important that we don't necessarily, it doesn't need to be an either or. 
I think that Rita uses this concept of conditional freedom to talk about how we could spend more time thinking about how our our actions as individuals or as collectives, um, how they um, might impact or other people um, instead of, you know, just an emphasis on freedom, which is so deeply embedded in American culture. Um, and I think the, the third thing is um, Gabriel talks a lot about um, home gardens. And um, I just found his work to be really inspiring because we talk a lot in the book about um, reforming the system at different levels and scales. Um, I'm not sure if you guys already talked about sort of like the global, national, and local and community scales that are mentioned in the book. But um, what I really appreciate about his is that so many of those people found alternatives and just essentially were opting out of the systems that they had issues with. And so I think that's one of the real strengths of the, the book is that, you know, it provides so many different approaches and opportunities for doing things differently moving forward um, that I hope that readers take that away from it. Great. And then, uh, just to circle back to one other question that I wanted to give you a chance to uh, give your input in, uh, I had asked about how the six of you worked together uh, on this project because it's you know a large number of editors to have on uh, a single book, and so I was just wondering if you had any um, thoughts to share about how the process worked, both from the practical side of you know getting the project to move along to its uh, conclusion, and then also the intellectual side of bringing together the different perspectives that the six of you brought to this material when you came together to edit the book and to plan the conference as well that uh, started this all. Yeah, that's a a great question. And forgive me if I repeat something that's already been said, but um, I think I'll start with the the symposium or conference. Um, One thing that didn't get mentioned earlier is how, you know, with both the conference and with the book, you know, we try to um, practice what we're talking about. So justice is really central to how um, I and and my co-editors and I think the authors as well try and operate. And so when we did the symposium, um, we raised a lot of money. So there was no fee to attend the conference. Um, Meals were provided uh, for every meal. Um, We worked really hard to Uh, provide lodging and travel costs for a variety of different attendees. And um, I think that was really uh, a great way to approach uh, the conference and symposium symposium given its uh, focus on justice. And I think when it came to editing the volume, um, you know, most of us had been working together for several years, um, trying to to turn our working group into a center. And so uh, we really did a, a division of labor where Katie and Melinda and I focused a lot on the book while um, Josh, Demetrius, and Stephanie uh, worked at the institutional level at CSU to move the center forward. And so um, I think we somewhat avoided the uh, too many cooks because of that. But what we did do is um, uh, Melinda and Katie and I, we all kind of took on different sections of the book. Um, So again, it it gave us all the ability to work without interfering with um, someone else, but then we would often come together and talk about it. Or if we weren't sure um, about something in our section, we would would, um, come together and speak about that. And then 
Josh and Stephanie and Demetrius each took leads writing particular parts of, of the volume. And then they, as well as all of our amazing authors, also served in peer review roles um, throughout this process. And so I think, uh, you know, what makes me, there are many reasons I'm very proud of, of this book that we've collectively created. Um, but one of them really is the degree to which it felt um fully collaborative across the board. Great. That's always good to hear that you had a, a good collaborative uh, relationship uh, working on this book. So to wrap up our interview, uh, we always like to ask what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you each taking up now that this book is out? Well, I'll kick it off then. Um, I'm, I am working on a, a project where it's global in scope, and we are addressing issues related to the second-order impacts of the COVID pandemic. So not, not issues associated with the number of deaths and vaccination strategies and uh, hospital things, but to really focus on the emergence of the, the powerful story about inequity and what the pandemic has revealed to us. And so we have nine different projects all around the world in, in urban areas focusing on vulnerable populations, you know, those most at risk, those living in informal settlements, those who lack access to resources. And this is, this is a, a powerful environmental justice story, and it just demonstrates how important it is to address these issues. And with that, I'll pass it on. Um, sure. So I am, as I mentioned, still a PhD candidate at CSU. So I am still trying to complete my dissertation. I'm hoping to graduate in May. Um, my work focuses on protected area effectiveness in Mexico, and I've been working closely with uh, the Park Service in Mexico to look at the impacts of COVID-19 on both conservation and protected area success, as well as the communities that live in and around protected areas and how kind of support systems and their uh, economies and livelihoods have been disrupted with the pandemic. Um, I've also been working as a contractor for the United States Geological Survey on a um, transboundary water governance project in the Mekong Delta region, looking at um, areas sensitive to water stress um, and have been working on developing a decision-making tool for water managers in that region to try to avoid some of those impacts that we'll, we'll see in the future with uh, climate change and extreme weather events changing in those regions. And um, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, I am now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Exeter. I'm in the geography department. And um, the postdoc that I've been working on the last two years is focused on um, community impacts and public perceptions of shale gas projects in the UK. Um, my role is mainly focused on developing case study research um, and uh, so I've been working on that for two years, as I said, and that will continue into next year. Um, and then I'll continue to focus on power and procedural justice in energy and climate decision-making uh, contexts um, on two projects that I'm a co-investigator on moving forward. So one is looking at uh, geothermal energy development in the UK. And the second is looking at, um, it's a fairly large project. I'm a very small piece of it, but it's working on uh, decarbonizing um, the industrial sectors in the UK. 
And uh, moving forward beyond that, I've been wanting to and trying to work on um, developing some research around looking at um, uh, power and procedural justice in the context of uh, climate displacement. All right. Well, those all sound like fascinating projects. Uh, so maybe we'll have uh, one or all of you back on the show at some point uh, if uh, any books come out of that. Uh, so thank you all so much for coming on the show. You just heard a conversation with Stacia Ryder, Catherine Powlin, and Melinda Lituri, who, along with Stephanie Malin, Joshua Spica, and Demetra Stevis, are editors of Environmental Justice in the Anthropocene, From Unjust Presence to Just Futures, published this year by Rutledge. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.